We've been going through Romans, which is a book in the New Testament. And one thing I love about Romans um, is that though it's probably the most monumentous theological book in the New Testament, it's also, and because of that, the most practical book in the whole Bible. See, oftentimes we drive this wedge between theology and practicality, but in the same way how you view anatomy drives medicine, and how you view fitness drives your workouts, how you view fashion um, drives your wardrobe, how you view God shapes everything that you do. And for the first four, the last four weeks, Paul has really been giving us as Christians, Christian ethics. Ethics is the philosophy of what we ought to do. How is it that we should act? And, and in the past few weeks, we've seen how ought we to act in the midst of opposition. Two weeks ago, we said, how ought we to live in light of government? Last week, we, we saw how ought we to live with everybody around us? How do we interact with anyone and everyone? But today, Paul is going to tell us how we ought to live amongst other believers. How do we live with other Christians? The first verse we're going to see tonight, uh, which Rachel just read, Romans 14.1 says, As for him who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. The last verse we're going to look at tonight, Hebrews or Romans 15.7 says, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, for the glory of God. So the question we need to think about tonight is how do we welcome believers into our midst? More importantly, as we sit here at Grizzly Christian Fellowship, as those of you who go to Sovereign Hope, how do we welcome people into this midst, into this body? Because this is where things get messy. Because Christian, one of my favorite reprieves is Christians are weird. Christians are weird. And I say that as a guy who's been a Christian for just about 25 years. And, and it's really easy to get along with other Christians and other people at your church if life was just like Facebook or Twitter, right? Because if they say something weird, it's like we can hide them. If they do something weird, we can choose not to follow them. If they post something weird, we can choose to ignore it. But the hiddenness and the distance between those, those awkward interactions, it goes away when we gather together at church. We deal with, in the full humanity, one another. And, and literally, the Greek word for church, ekklesia, it means assembly. Church isn't a system of belief. Church is a gathering of people who believe. The church requires you to be in the presence of, rubbing elbows with other people. And as we get together with other people, if you haven't noticed it already, so those of you who were here early, I think Emma was the unfortunate one to wander in during this. Our worship band was singing nasty, old, cheesy camp songs. And I was terrified that people would hear it and be like, Christians are weird and they never come here. Um, and so if there's a small group here tonight, which there is, it's because people heard it that Christians are weird and they left. Um, but we do weird things. And as you're in church, you're going to encounter people who do weird things and have weird opinions. For instance, you're going to run into people who think this genre of worship music, this era of worship music, is the only style of worship music. This translation of the Bible is the only translation of the Bible. This manner of dressing yourself is the only Christian manner. This manner of talking is the only Christian manner. Christian movies are the only sort of entertainment you should watch. 
God's Not Dead 2 comes out this Friday, and nothing says God's still relevant like a movie no one will go watch. Um, some people will say Christian music is the only good sort of music, but, and that's easy to sit here and laugh about, but what happens as we're in church and we encounter opinions like that? What if there are people sitting across the way who, who say your opinion that you think God's Not Dead is a stupid film is a stupid opinion? What do we do when we encounter these things? And we need to know, we need to have guiding principles when this happens because it might happen here at GCF, but in all reality, we're in a similar socioeconomic sta station in life. We're all of similar age groups. We all have similar desires at this point, similar interests. But as we get involved with churches outside of Grizzly Christian Fellowship, the, the sphere of places we can run into different people grows. And because of that, tonight we're going to look at what's called intra, Paul's intra-Christian ethics. So he's talking specifically to us as Christians. How do we relate to one another? How do we get along? And how do we do this well? He's not so much focusing on how we interact with people outside the faith. He's already done that. But to those inside the faith, he's going to give us some thoughts tonight. And what we're going to see tonight is that Christians can only relate to each other well when they first have a right view of themselves and a right view of Jesus. To relate well to people who are different than you, you must have a right view of yourself and a right view of Jesus. The problem for us is that both of those th two things are unnatural because it takes sober reflection on who we are. It's easy to point out how other people are different and weird. It's less easy to point out how we're different and weird. So let's pray that God is kind to us tonight as we look at his word in Romans 14 and 15. Lord, we come before you uh, as a weird people who live in a weird world and you've given us uh, hearts and minds which are quick to form opinions, whether they are good opinions, weak opinions, strong opinions, or silly opinions. You've given us the ability to do that. But Lord, I pray as we look at how we interact with one another as believers, as people who love and worship Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins, that you help us understand how we can interact in a way which produces um, beneficial relationships, which leads us to love people who are different rather than simply making Christian cliques, uh, which scorn those who are different and only accept those who are the same. We pray that, that happens tonight because we need that to be evangelists, to be disciplers, to be missionaries. We have to learn how to get along well with the church of Jesus. We pray that, that happens in our midst tonight. Pray us in your name. Amen. So before we get going, I want to talk briefly about two camps, okay? Because there is two camps that we tend to fall into when we encounter someone who's different than us. There are two ways we will typically respond. The first camp, when we encounter someone who's different or holds a different opinion, is total restriction of everything, right? If you do something different than me, think something different than me, believe something different than me, act different than me, you're wrong and I'm right. And we've all seen people who do this, perhaps that's you, and what the mantra of this camp is, this total restriction camp, is that I am the objective standard for what is good. I am the objective standard of how you should function, and if you function differently than me, there's an error in how you understand this world. And realistically, uh, though I'm sure all of us can think of people, right, it's easy to think of other people who are like this in your own life, uh, the tendency is actually for, this, this kind of typifies our parents' generation as there are people who looked at how we function and they based it 
on how they function, what their likes are, how they perceived Christianity to be. Currently, what's popular um, among Christians, and especially among non-Christians, is this second camp, where the first camp is total restriction of everything. The second camp is full license of anything. This camp says, if you run into someone who's different than you, you celebrate the difference because you don't need to be like anyone else. You don't need to think like anyone else, talk like anyone else, be influenced by anyone else, or act like anyone else. Where the first camp's mantra is, be like me, the second camp's mantra is, there is no objective standard for what is right or wrong. And certainly this is a growing camp in Christian culture today. Uh, I recently read, well, I was given a book that I glanced at because I wasn't too interested in it. Uh, and it's, it's this, this, this study, this long study on why young people are leaving the church, which actually, if you look at statistics, there are also a lot of young people joining the church. So it's not completely telling of our culture today. But the, the point was, is interviewed your peers, interviewed 18 to 29-year-olds, and asked people who were once in the church, who are now leaving the church, why is it they're doing that? Of that pool, 39% of uh, people your age said they were leaving the church because they don't want to follow the rules of the church. They don't want to follow the regulations. They want, don't want to conform to what the church is asking them to do. 33% of them said that they were leaving the church because they can't find freedom in the church, that they feel their freedom is restricted and they must find it outside of the church. The irony of both of those two camps, not wanting to follow rules and not feeling free, is that the gospel is a gospel. It's good news about freedom. Paul himself says in Galatians, for freedom Christ has set you free. Earlier on in Romans, Paul has hammered into our minds that we are free from the law. We are free from sin. We are free from death. We are free from the burdens of works-based salvation that you have to do, act, think, and perform certain rituals or sacrifices in order to be saved because Christ has freed you through his perfect sacrifice. So how then, if we are people who look at the gospel and we see the gospel is a gospel about freedom, how do we interact with people who have different views of what that freedom means? When they say freedom is something that is not in the gospel. And tonight, Paul is going to give us a middle way. Where we've looked at total restriction and total license, Paul's going to give us a gospel way to respond when we encounter believers who think differently than us. And in this text tonight, Paul is going to give us three principles for intra-Christian ethics. Three things that frame our thoughts. And so our democracy and our constitution in America is largely based off of what Thomas Jefferson said in the, in, in the Declaration of Independence, where he said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So he defines these principles, and then he says this, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their powers from the consent of the governed. And so he lays out these principles, and they arrange their lives around these principles. And what Paul is doing right now, he's giving us three principles. He's giving us three declarations of how we need to think about ourselves, and that shapes how we deal with other Christians. And so uh, we want to read tonight. It's going to be three big chunks of, of text because we're getting through a lot of uh, text here. So our first 
passage we're going to look at tonight is Romans 14, 1 through 12. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may, may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. That was my favorite part of this entire text, just knowing that the Bible says, out of context, the weak person eats only vegetables. Anyway, uh, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord, and he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us die to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ lived and died again, that he might be Lord both of the living and of, or of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So our first principle tonight is that intra-Christian ethics are bound to and under God. As Thomas Jefferson gave the parameters of what he thought uh, democracy should be, here we see Paul carving out parameters of how, what, how Christians should relate to one another. And when we look at this text, we need to pull out some assumptions here. So what, what is Paul assuming? Because the issues at stake here in Rome are not issues of deep theological significance. You see, in other places in Paul's writings, like in Colossians and in Corinthians, Paul talks about people who are living different ways and requiring different manners of life and forcing people to eat certain types of food. And he says those individuals are outside of the faith. They are hostile. They are not for the gospel. But we don't see Paul using that language here. Paul's not talking about people who are outside of the faith or hostile to the gospel. In fact, Paul gave the two categories of people he's talking about here in verse 1. He's talking to the weak Christian and the strong Christian. And this makes sense because Rome was this huge cosmopolitan city in this time. And it was assumed that in the, the church of Rome, there were gathered people from all sorts of different backgrounds. It was the capital of everything going on in that day. And so you would have coming into church in Rome, First Baptist Church of Rome on the corner of Broadway and First, I don't know where First Baptist Church is. Um, you'd have people from a Greek background, Christians from a Greek background, Christians from a Roman background, Christians from a Jewish background, Christians from other pagan backgrounds. Yet all of them are gathering, not as Greeks, Jews, Romans, or pagans, but as Christians. And unfortunately, a lot of people look at this text. Uh, it's increasingly popular today to look at this text and to say what Paul's talking about here is that we shouldn't care about deep theological matters of the faith. Do we really, Paul's saying, do you really need to quarrel? Do you really need to fight over what somebody believes? Do we really care that Jesus really lived? Does it really matter that Jesus was really divine? That Jesus was really sinless? That Jesus really rose from the dead? That the Bible is really God's word? Who are we to judge? That's between the individual and God. 
But that's not what this passage is talking about. This passage isn't talking about deep matters related to theology. It's talking about what you're eating and what day you go to church. These are tertiary matters to the core of the faith. And so this naturally limits out camp two, where when we encounter people who are different, we say, hey, it, there's, do whatever you want to do. Anything is permissible. Because God is actually binding actions here. And he's binding our actions to something. Look back at uh, verses five and six. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And what does it look like when we're convinced? Paul goes on. The one who observes the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So Paul isn't saying, worship who you want to worship, practice worship how you want to practice worship, bow to whom you want to bow. It's between you and that person's master. He's saying, no, it's about the Lord. It's about God. There's a boundary of what is right and what is wrong in terms of what you're believing. And God is the definition of that. And Paul doesn't spend much time talking about that because that was the assumption. He doesn't live in this great pluralistic society where Christianity has been equated with Buddhism and spirituality and Zen and Islam and all those things. Christianity was unique in this time period. And so to think that Paul is talking here to say it's kind of like a pick your path to heaven scenario is so foreign to what the original readers would have encountered. And so what Paul is talking about here is actually harder. Because if someone came up to you, it's like, hey, I don't believe there's a trinity. I don't believe Jesus really rose from the dead. Those would be red flags, right? And we would have a greater sense of clarity and urgency as to what to do. Unfortunately, because these are issues of how we act as Christians inside of the faith, these are issues that each of us are going to encounter in your life. You're going to encounter people in the church who think and act differently than you. And so not only does Paul distance himself from the camp of total license, he also distanced himself from the first camp of equating and imposing your standards as the ultimate standards. Because what Paul's doing in this text is he's establishing God as Lord over everything. And in doing that, he's saying, you're not the objective standard. I don't want my church to look like you. I want my church to look like me. Look at verses 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And so it's kind of weird here. Paul shifts to talking about God's judgment. And it's kind of weird. We need some background to understand that because what's going on in this church? Why is he talking about eating and days and all this kind of stuff? So what's going on here um, is that there are two groups of people. There are the weak people who prefer to only eat vegetables, which still makes me laugh. And then there are the strong people who are able to eat meat because their jaws are stronger. Um, no, that's, and it's not because Christianity is innately tied to meat, though I wish it were so. Um, and it's not because it is a sin to not eat meat, and it is more holy to eat vegetables. Nor is it uh, a sin to eat vegetables and more holy to eat meat. It's because Paul says that there are weaker people in the faith. And in this melting pot community of Rome, you have people from a Jewish background who are worried about eating meat 
that is not kosher. It's not up to the Jewish dietary laws that they are once following. And as they're learning to be Christian, they're still not fully realizing that Christ has freed them from that. And so they're saying, I'm not going to eat any meat in the event that I accidentally violate God's commands. And then additionally, perhaps there are people from pagan backgrounds. And what was very typical in that day is before meat was brought to the marketplace, it would be sacrificed to idols. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 says that who, if, who cares if it's sacrificed to idols? They're not real. They're not real gods. Christians, go and eat that meat for there is one God. But some new Christians who are so involved with that pagan culture of idol worship, they're like, I don't know if I could do that. That is so close to my old life. I don't want to accidentally eat a meat that was sacrificed to an idol. And while a strong believer, like Paul, who we'll see, can look back and say, God has made all foods clean. Paul says that we shouldn't make this such a big deal. We shouldn't be like, no, you weak-minded Christian. Eat your meat and shut up. Although Paul says that that is the true, that that's what Christ has freed us to do. Paul's saying their actions are not sinful. They're done out of weakness. In fact, they're, they're not abstaining from food and looking for a special day to worship because they want to sin. It's actually because they're scared of sinning. They're trying to distance themselves so much from things which were once sin to them that they're limiting themselves to protect themselves. And then Paul kind of turns the tables here and he says, you ought to be mindful of your own actions because you will one day stand before God. And Paul actually says, your sin might be failing to deal with the weak well. You will not be responsible for what you eat. You will be responsible for how you live in peace with your brother in Christ you see, the first principle is that you need to realize the position that God is the judge and the definition of who is saved, not you. God is the standard of holiness, not us. And when we understand that, it shapes the way we interact with one another. Paul begins to explain this more in verses 13 through 23. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ has died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So the second principle of intra-Christian ethics is that we are bound as Christians to love, liberty, and limitation. Why is, this, why is it important to understand we're bound to God, first of all? Why does that build into this love, liberty, and limitation? Because if we don't understand that we can promote a dangerous lifestyle without God, God doesn't matter, belief doesn't matter, do what you want to do, but we can also set up a true religion based off of who we are, that I'm God, that I deem what's necessary, we can see the great harm we cause to people when we have false views of ourselves and false views of God. And to have a false view of either of those 
Paul just points out that in your strength, you might destroy those who are in Christ. Now, this is a big charge because God, Paul said earlier in Romans 8, right? We remember this. Everyone knows this passage. Um, For what can separate us from the love of God shall nakedness, famine, danger, or sword, knowing all these things were more than conquerors from him, for, in him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor powers, nor present, nor things to come, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ in, our, in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he says, you can destroy the one who's in Christ by what you eat. Cosmic powers? Don't stand a chance. Wing Tuesdays? You got a problem. Why is that? That's something we should really be aware of, right? That's something we should really be concerned with. And this is a huge thing for us to understand today. That biblical love is often liberty limited. Biblical love is often liberty limited. That seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? To say that freedom is limited. To say that liberty is limited. And certainly our culture thinks so. Our culture equates freedom and strength to absolute freedom. No boundaries, no regulations, no no's. There's a big parenting movement called, uh, what's it called? Love and logic. You don't say no to your children. Those people have never had my children. My children need to be told no, or they would do awful things to me in my sleep. And they're three in one. But we remove no's. Remove any sort of barriers and take, for instance, um, something even more public than parenting. Two big issues in America today. Right now, the Supreme Court is hearing a case from a Catholic group called Little Sisters of the Poor. And under Obamacare, uh, certain employers must provide birth control uh, to their employees. Yet much of this sanctioned birth control contains abortifacients, meaning that it kills the human embryo after it's been fertilized. And this group, because of biblical right convictions, are saying we don't want to pay for something that, that violates what we think to be right. And so they're, they're going to the Supreme Court and they're saying, we, it's not that we don't want to provide birth control. We will do birth control. We're just going to draw the line when it comes to killing a baby. We don't want to spend our money doing something that we think impinges on freedom. But the liberal opposition is saying, in the name of freedom, both people are claiming freedom. In the name of freedom, you should be forced to provide those drugs because if you do not provide those drugs, you're limiting the freedom to choose. How can they be free if they're not afforded every aspect of that birth control? Additionally, in Georgia, the governor recently pledged to veto House Bill 757, which is a bill that was proposed and passed by the Georgia House that says that... um, Religious clergy members may tell a homosexual couple that they don't want to marry him. That's it. And a Christian baker can say, I'd rather not bake you uh, a cake. A Christian wedding planner could say, I'd rather not do that and not be sued. That's all it said. It's not you can't do that. It's just saying, I would rather not do that. Can I, help? I know a, a wedding planning business in Missoula that recently had to tell a homosexual couple, no. But they said, here are some other options for you. They were saying you can't do it. They're saying, I'm not going to do it. And that bill was pledged to be vetoed by the governor because he says there shouldn't be any sort of discrimination on anyone's freedom. 
and they're forcing people to do things that they think to be wrong in the name of not limiting freedom. You see, people weren't saying, um, we don't want this to be legal. They're saying, we just don't want to participate. But see, cultural freedom, it's not enough to say it's legal. Instead, for true freedom to happen according to culture, everyone has to participate in it. Because if you don't participate in it, you're inhibiting freedom. You see, the fallacy of both of those oppositions in both the Supreme Court and in Georgia is that they see ultimate freedom, no boundaries, as what's ultimately freeing. However, they fail to realize that their freedom is actually limiting the freedom of others. This is the logic. You are free to do whatever you want to do, but you are never free to not do what you feel is wrong. To them, to limit anything is an impingement on freedom, even when it violates someone else's. They're forcing people to do things they think to be wrong, and that is far more an infringement on liberty than anything else. But believers, we don't need such a confused and muddled idea of liberty because we know biblical liberty. We know biblical love. We know that liberty is often limited in the sake of godly affection. Let me give you an example. When GCF first started, um, it, was about, it was four years ago, and we inherited this group of uh, upper, upperclassmen and postgrads who were college age, and they got together like, hey, we should start a college group. And we're like, okay, let's do it. And so we got together, um, and because everybody was uh, over 21, what, what happened is we'd come and we'd do GCF, and then a couple individuals were like, let's go to Jaker's. They have half-price beer. And so they go and they drink beer, and then that group got bigger and bigger, and ultimately it just ended up that all of GCF would leave Chem 123, and they'd go to Jaker's, and a lot of people would get beer, and some people would just get appetizers, and that was fine. There's Christian liberty there. The Bible doesn't say you shouldn't drink. Jesus' first miracle was to make alcohol. Um, but the Bible says we shouldn't get drunk with wine. But is, the, is that the only command the Bible gives in terms of our actions? Because what happened is we started to gain underclassmen. We also started to gain size and we gained upperclassmen who were of drinking age, who felt that we shouldn't be doing that. And it began to be an obstacle to certain people. They wouldn't come to GCF because they knew that beer was going to be consumed after it. Now, as Paul said, it is, Paul is clear and persuaded that all foods are unclean. And it's clear in Scripture that drinking in and of itself is not a sin. So we could have said, so what? We're going to drink anyway. We could have said, deal with it. We could have even said it's legalistic of you to think that. And we would have almost had a great theological argument to stand on. <laughs> Except if we're concerned about theology, we would have also looked at ourselves. And instead, what we did is I, I talked to the older guys who were involved with GCF, and I said, hey, for the sake of other people, can we not drink? And because Paul says in Romans 14, 15, that if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. We learn that oftentimes we can be right in logic and wrong in love, and that's what God cares about. 
we were absolutely free to do that. But we would have been committing sins to continue on because we would have forced a weaker member of the faith, brothers and sisters in Christ, to violate their own conscience. In fear of sinning, we would have caused those same people who are fearful to sin to commit sin. The Bible says both the weak and the strong ought not to despise one another, but ought to build one another up. You see, the beauty of the gospel is that we're actually free to limit ourselves in areas of personal preference or weakness because we know that true freedom isn't found in freedom from all things. It's found in Christ himself. We may limit ourselves because our joy isn't tied to ultimate freedom. Our joy is tied to the one who embodied freedom. Look at how Paul closes the passage tonight. Verse, uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The sins, who, who, uh, the sins of those who had sinned fell on Jesus, in other words. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, for the glory of God. Why are we free to limit ourselves? Why are we able to see true freedom in the face of culture's oppressive and unlimited freedom? Because we've seen Jesus. And that's our final point tonight. Christian ethics must be bound to Christ. You see, we're not saved by a functional commitment to absolute freedom. We're not. We're saved by freedom limited by love. In heaven, Christ was free of all restraints. He chose to lay them down, as Paul says in Philippians, taking the form of a servant. Christ was free from all physical locations. He was omnipresent, and he became bound to one man in one position. He was free of all human mockery, enjoying perfect perfection and joy in the Trinity for all eternity. And he chose to take on flesh and be despised and murdered by the masses. Christ was free from all sin, but he chose to bear yours. Christ was free from the burden or the sting of death, but he chose to endure it for the sake of his church. You see, we're able to live alongside people who are different than us or weaker than us because we've seen Jesus, and we can put up with different opinions and irritating people because we irritated Jesus, because we killed him with our sin. We were enemies of God, and yet he chose to love us. But Paul has outlined here, when we encounter people who are different than us, it calls us to look at our own hearts. Paul's not saying, don't be concerned about people who are different. Paul's not saying, don't let that weak person stay weak their whole lives. But what he's saying is, look at yourself first. Because oftentimes the things that irritate me are the things that remind me I'm not God. That's deeply irritating 
to me because I like to be the standard, but we're not God and Jesus is. And Jesus has called us and our egos and our issues and our opinions to live together in the church. And this is the call of discipleship. Because we're not only to live alongside each other. Like I can walk, you ever have those times where you leave the grocery store at the same time as somebody else and you walk through the sliding doors and your cars are parked next to each other. You're just kind of like walking like hoping that you don't realize that there's another human being walking a foot from you. Uh, maybe I'm the only one who does that. Uh, and sometimes I stop and like fake tie my shoe or something. But we can. we can. We can walk alongside someone and not really have to deal with them. But do you see the words that were repeated over and over again in, in chapters 14 and 15? Build each other up. Encourage one another. Mutual peace. Mutual upbuilding. You see, Jesus hasn't called us just to put up with one another. Jesus has called us to, to join arms and slowly and gently, sometimes awkwardly, walk with those who are weaker than us or even just different than us in the faith. You see, intra-Christian ethics are the basis of discipleship. And that's actually what's most needed for GCF, Grizzly Christian Fellowship, today. Because going back and looking, we're, this is our fifth year of GCF. We graduated a whole crop of people. And when GCF started, I told you it was this group of people who wanted it to start. They showed up because they wanted to be here. And they showed up because they were friends. And because they were friends, they did things with each other outside of GCF. And so me, being young and immature in my pastoring skills, I looked at that and said, discipleship is happening. People are hanging out with people. And it's good and it's great. That's what I want. They're meeting with each other. I don't have to tell them to meet with people. And they're having a good time. But discipleship wasn't happening. Friendship was. And friendship looks a lot like discipleship, and it's good. And discipleship often leads to friendship. But the problem is when discipleship doesn't happen, cliques do. Because it's just based on personal preference and affinity. And I can tell you the number one reason people have left Grizzly Christian Fellowship, both believers and non-believers in the past, is the complaint that it's been clicky. That's less so now because we don't have enough people to form a clique. Um, so you guys are a little bit... Uh, freed from that. But, but this passage brought some clarity to me. It really did. Anyone can get along with people who are like them in regards to strengths, association, hobbies, and cultures. But it truly takes a Christian to invest in people who are different, who are weaker, who are outsiders. And what this passage calls us to do is to understand the priority of welcoming one another in the church of God. We're called to be evangelistic. We can't disassociate caring for Christians from caring for non-Christians. It's deeply tied to one another. But what this passage tells us is that we need to, we ought to be compelled to meet people in a new way, a real way. And where friendship is what happens when we cling to what is near, discipleship is what happens when we reach down into what is different. And only when we've reached down can we bring people up and truly be friends. And this is where we need to grow as a group. I firmly believe God's doing this in our midst. And he's going to continue to do it. Where we care less about personal preference and just our soul. It's easy in college. And you should have great friends. But it's so easy to have that great, great group of friends and never step outside of it to talk to someone different to talk to someone unique, to talk to someone new, to talk to someone who's odd in your eyes. 
Even though you're odd in a lot of people's eyes, I of all people know how weird I am, and I'm grateful that not weird people have reached out to me. You see, I want us to pray that we can get along biblically and build up one another so that we might be better ministers, better evangelists, and better disciples here on campus. I want it to be our desire to cast aside personal preference, which is so often equated with college. College caters to you. That's what it's set to do. What do you want to study? What do you want to do? Where do you want to eat? Where do you want to live? But Christianity dethrones us, and it puts Jesus at the top, and Jesus enables us to serve others. And I pray that by engaging believers better, we're able and more equipped and more encouraged to interact with non-believers. So just a brief takeaway for you guys is I want us to disciple. I want us to do that well because that's what we're called to do. But I also want you to consider how your life would impact those who are weaker in the faith. That means what movies are you watching? Uh, I was just reading a book with another kid at GCF and the guy who was writing it said he had to give up James Bond movies. He had a, a really bad addiction to pornography and was really lustful in his heart. And the movies just incited lustful thoughts in him. Do I have anything against watching James Bond? No. And actually James Bond nowadays is one of the more less nude movies that's out there. But if I were to watch James Bond with some guys, if some guys were to watch other movies with me, it would cause me to sin. What movies are you watching? What friends are you hanging out with? What places are you going to? What things are you doing that might be completely free and you might be strong enough to abstain from sin but would cause others to sin alongside you? Because if you're thoughtless in those things, you're the one who's facing judgment, not the one who's weak. You see, Jesus' ministry was not typified by crushing the weak but opposing the strong. So you ought not think that you are only the strong, but you should also consider yourself as the weak in need of grace. And by the grace that God has given, we may limit ourselves for the sake of our holiness and the good of others. And in so doing, we will build up the church, this church, for the glory of God and the good of those who don't yet know King Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I pray... Um, this is just, just a weird text because it talks about things that are so foreign to us. And while we don't care about what we eat or what day we worship, Lord, we deeply care about ourselves. And in subtle ways in our generation, as it has been for generations past, we tend to shame and judge those who don't meet our opinions or our preferences. And in so doing, we maim the body of Christ. But Lord, I pray you make us more aware of the need to build one another up for the glory of God and for the good of the church. I pray that you grant us in our hearts to not only see ourselves as strong, but to see ourselves in need of a Savior who threw aside ultimate freedom to limit himself in love for those who were in need. God, I pray that we become a stickier group of individuals, that we may invest in people who are different than us because the body of Christ should look beautifully different. Because it is an assembly of people from different backgrounds, from different tongues and nations and tribes for the glory of God because salvation knows dis no distinction because you are great God zealous for salvation. So here on this campus, Lord, 
Stir us to strive with one another, to pray with one another, to read with one another for our own good, for their good, for your glory. And Lord, we pray that people might meet Jesus through it. I pray this in your name. Amen.